Three stories we're going to talk about today, they have a common theme, and that is rejection. Rejection. Or maybe said a better way, it is the cost of discipleship. Rejection. I remember being a little kid. Uh, some people see me now as being somewhat confident, sort of a, a type A personality. But I can tell you when I was a little kid, I suffered from what I felt was rejection. I remember being in the schoolyard and would run away from kids and sit and stay away from the crowd just waiting for someone to come to me to show that I had value. I remember it as long as, I, as long as I'll be alive. I remember what it's like when I was younger to be, uh, when they would split up and you would have team captains. I would always pray to be the team captain, not because I was the best person out there, but because I would not get picked last. The idea of rejection, of wondering when it's going to come down to you being at the bottom of the rung, and you're the last person in there, and you're sort of the butt of the jokes because you were the last person picked. I know I'm not the only one out here. So rejection is a theme that's in the Bible. It is a theme of discipleship. It is the theme of these three short stories that we're going to look at. So we're going to look at the definition here. Uh, reject, rejection is to refuse to accept, consider, submit to, take for purpose to refuse to hear, receive, or admit. Uh, someone's like, sometimes like parents who reject their children or children who reject their parents. Uh, to refuse as a lover or a spouse. Have you ever had someone drop you back in the day or even recently? That rejection cuts to our core. Uh, it also means you can be, feel like you become obsolete or to be cast off. Jesus was not unaware of rejection. So John uh, chapter 1 says this, recently I was in with a group of men, and this sort of came uh, back to me this week. Oh, go back there, you're right. John 15, 20. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey Yours also. So the thing I want to focus on is a servant is not greater than his master. So whenever you see this up here, I want you to read it with me out loud. A servant is not greater than his master. That's going to be the underlying theme that carries through here. So Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at the first six verses initially. Please open your Bibles up, check it out. So Jesus, uh, they went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could, not, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands 
on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So he went, he left the Sea of Galilee area. He went about 25, 20, 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee to the area of his growing up. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I thought someone was talking in tongues over there. I was, uh, I was just, the kid was beautiful. I was, uh, who's talking to me? Hi there. All right. Hello. I haven't taken my medication. All right, so he went and he left and he went to Nazareth with his disciples and his disciples followed him there. And this area was a bit rocky. It, was, uh, it did not have a lot of trees. It was more just sort of rocky and tough terrain. And so uh, this is the land that was given, given to Herod Antipas. Now, to make this story a little bit make sense, Herod's father, Herod the Great, when he died, he gave his four sons four sections of the land, and uh, they were called Tetrarch, which sort of means like a fourth. So Herod Antipas, uh, who was Tetrarch of Galilee, he recruited artisans from all around to come and work on his, um, in different villages in his capital, Sephoris. So it is possible, not definite, that Jesus and maybe Joseph were recruited and worked on the city and did, and did work there. Now, in verse 3, it says their response to Jesus wasn't very encouraging. So he said how great he was, right? You heard, man, he's a great teacher. He's doing mighty works. How is this? Is not this the carpenter? Now, to be clear, in those days, uh, for a Jew to be a carpenter was not a lesser trade. In our days, it's not a lesser trade. Matter of fact, it should be viewed as they are someone who is like an architect. They are a builder. And so in Jesus's case, a carpenter, the word tecton, uh, tec yeah, tecton means to create or produce things. So he could have been a wood builder. He could have been a stone builder. He could have been the architect of a house. So when we hear architect, that uh, Greek word tecton is where the end word architect comes from. And for the one of you that cares about that, I just figured I'd share it with you. Uh, but it's, it's interesting to know that Jesus wasn't necessarily just a wood carpenter. He could have also been a stonemason. And we'll continue to see where it talks about Jesus uses those references throughout the Gospels when you hear him speaking about building. Uh, but look, and he said, the son of Mary. Now, that is an interesting thing as well, because normally a son would be referred to as the son of the father. So it would be like, hey, isn't that Joseph's son? But they didn't do that. They said, this is the son of Mary. Now, there's two, there's a couple possible reasons. The first is, um, and the least likely reason they said this, is that Joseph had probably passed away. It's, it's sort of debatable that he was already gone at this point. Uh, and so they referred to it. But that wasn't tradition for them. It was more like that they were pointing out that Jesus was the son of Mary. Matter of fact, probably why they were pointing out is they were aware this small town of Nazareth had about 500 people. 
Now imagine that. Y'all think we live in a small town? Do you not think that the people in that small town were aware that Mary was with child? Do you not know that, uh, or do you not think that they might be using this as as an opportunity to look down on Jesus? Look, Jesus, (laughs) the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So this also continues the, the idea that Mary and Joseph continue to have children. So a lot's going on here. And it says, are not his sisters here with us? And the reason most likely they weren't named is because they were already married. So there's a lot of historical, uh, traditional stuff going on in this one verse. And then look at what they came up with. And they took, what? Offense at him. Imagine if somebody came back to town and it's all of a sudden they are, they're preaching a good news. If you're, if you're for the good news, you're going to be excited. They weren't excited. Isn't this Jesus, son of Mary? We don't even know that Joseph was his father. He probably got married for this and that. They took offense at him. So the Greek word for offense, I'm, I'm giving you more Greek than I've given you in a year. So those of you, one or two who like it, God bless you. For the rest, I'm boring you. Just take notes. Uh, the Greek word for offense used here is scandalizome. I'd probably say that right. The noun form of this word is scandalon, which comes over into English language as the word scandal. Um, so they, they had this deep feeling about an offense that Jesus was scandalous in his nature. That there was something going on there. That word was also used uh, as a, the building stone that was rejected. So if someone were to go to a quarry and they were to pick out a good rock, if they wanted a cornerstone, right? They're going to go and they're going to look for the thing that is best suited for the cornerstone. The strongest, the best looking thing, everything without imperfections. And this word is literally pointing to a stone that the builders go, that is not going to be the cornerstone. That is a rejected stone. It's going to get tossed out. It's going to be in the discount pile over in Lowe's for people to put in their backyard, whoever might want it. But we are not going to use that. That word is used eight times in the Gospel of Mark. Each time it represents an obstruction that prevents us from coming to faith and following Jesus. Jesus is a cornerstone, but he's also scandalous in the sense that he was rejected. We see in uh, Psalm 118, 22, it said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the scandalous stone, the stone that didn't look like the people thought he should look like, the one that acted like the people thought they shouldn't act like, the one who healed and helped adulterous men and women and who uh, removed demons and did all this work and healed people, healed the lepers. He didn't fall into their conformity, so Jesus was scandalous, and he was rejected. By the, by the leaders of the Jewish parties. There are some probably in this room today that Jesus is scandalous to you. 
He doesn't fit how you want him to fit in your theology, in your expectation. And so you begin to craft, I should just better say this, in America, the churches have begun to craft a Jesus that doesn't line up with the Jesus of the Bible. Because Jesus is scandalous. He is the rejected rock that has become the cornerstone. And so people don't like, they'll say, well, I like his teaching, but I don't like some other things. And no, they don't like Jesus. Jesus is scandalous. He is a rock of offense. And I'm not like going, yeah, he's a rock of offense. I love it. This would not be my story for him. This is God's story told by the prophets, and prepared for this day. Acts 4.11 says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus is a rock of offense. Apart from God running to us. We just sang it, right? He runs to me. He ran to me in my death. He ran into me when I did not have ears to hear or eyes to see, and he gave me his spirit. He took my old heart, and he gave me a new heart. And he gave me a new life, and he gave me new power through the Holy Spirit. And so this is the Jesus that we say we follow. Now, in Mark 6, 5 through 6, it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about um, among the villages teaching. This struck me. He could do, Jesus, God, could do no mighty work there. Why? The people's unbelief. Man, that just like penetrated my soul for the church. Are we, are we unbelieving to some degree? Can it be? I'll just put it this way so you don't feel condemned. Can it be that we could get to such a place of unbelief that Jesus goes, I can't do anything there. And I'm going to move on. Maybe in your home, there's so little belief or trust that, and, and discipleship that you're following after him. There's so little that Jesus said, there's nothing much I can do there. I'm just going to move here where I'm welcomed. It's terrifying to me. I'm not preaching a, a Christianity that's comfortable here. I'm just preaching what Jesus says about discipleship, what it's like to live like Jesus lived. Here I see that unbelief can induce loss of power. Now, let me guess, here's a quote here. God's sovereign power is not rendered impotent by human unbelief, but refusal to trust him deprives people of the blessings of his presence and his favor. So the moment we begin to go, well, God must not love me, or I really don't know if he can do this. God can do whatever he wants to, and he is not made impotent. He is not made able to not do. 
But he is looking for vessels which are in faith, walking with him, trusting with him, individually as a single person, in a home as a, as a family, maybe in a neighborhood of people who are like, we're going to trust you, God, despite my circumstances, despite how I feel, God, I trust you. I trust you. And I pray we'll be a people that will not view God as unable. That because of their unbelief, he left. It's terrifying to me. It's terrifying to me. A servant is not greater than his master. Y'all forgot already. I love y'all, but come on now. A servant is not greater than his master. Is there any reason we shouldn't expect family to reject us because of unbelief? Because they don't believe what we believe? Is that, should that shock us? No. Should it shock us that they're going to make up drama and put stuff in the inquirer about you and maybe drag stuff out of your past in order to pull you down? Is that shocking? A servant is not greater than his master. If you are there and you have been wrestling with God, realize that Jesus has wrestled and done the work for us and he's been there and the rejection, if you are being obedient to him, not if you're leaving, uh, living a stupid, scandalous life, but if you're living a life for Jesus, you're going to be accused and you're going to deal with some rejection and you're going to deal with some pain, but he went through it and a servant is not greater than his master. If Jesus went through it, we're going to go through it. Is that not biblical? So we have to realign the lenses with which we look at our life. We have to have the view when something comes that we don't like, and dear God, I've had a number of them this week. Stuff comes that we don't like. Servant's not greater than his master. Jesus, I trust you. I do not want to be guilty of unbelief. I'm going to trust you in this. Story two. The calling of the 12, Mark 6, 7 through 13. Please just follow along in your Bibles. So remember, he was going amongst the villages teaching around Nazareth. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics, and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed. Look at verse 7. It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. It is interesting that we're going to have sandwiched Jesus' rejection in Nazareth with John the Baptist's ultimate rejection and murder, and here we have the sandwiching of the twelve coming together. So what I think one of the literary purposes here is that we have to understand there is a cost of discipleship that could mean rejection and death. 
We've been a little too coddled in America with the way things really can be. It's changing. It's changing. But we're a little too coddled, and so we've gotten a little too comfortable with our, our American Christianity, our soft uh, let's just read a couple of verses in the Bible and show up on church and whatever and not to be faithful in prayer and expectation that I just think we've gotten a little soft. But Jesus was always about calling and sending, calling and sending, calling and sending. He didn't say, come over, we're going to have a 10-year Bible study together. We're going to memorize Bibles, uh, Bibles, yeah, memorize the Bibles together, memorize Bible verses together, and so that when the, uh, someone comes to you, you'll be able to quote a verse really quick. No, he brought them in, spent time with them, walked with them, and sent them out two by two. It is also interesting that, um, and this, I uh, found this in the commentary, I'm not smart enough to bring this up, but I'm going to have to read it to you. The four items required of the 12 here are identical to the belongings that God instructs the Israelites to take on their flight from Egypt. A cloak, a belt, sandals, and a staff in hand. The parallel in dress, in other words, is identical with the Exodus apparel, but only loosely similar uh, to cynic dress. These four items of clothing recall the haste and expectation of the Exodus. Remember when the Israelites... the uh, Pharaoh finally let them go. They had to grab the unleavened bread. If you remember, if you're here for Easter, they took it because they didn't have time for the bread to rise, and they grabbed it and they ran. This suggests that the mission of the 12 announces something as foundational and revelatory as the exodus from Egypt, as that the, and that the disciples must be as free from encumbrances as were the Israelites to serve God in their new venture. So they were told... We're going to send you out two by two. Now, another good reason for that, let me just say, it is not good to be alone. Two are better than one. You know, I'll be the first to say sometimes I sort of, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, I'll repent later. Um, bad theology. Uh, but we, I see Jehovah's Witnesses driving with their white shirts and, and on bicycles and, and ties, right? You seeing them? You know what I mean? But dear God, at least they're out there doing something. Well, y'all quiet. I just think if, if this little church here in this metropolis of Easton would have the, the faith and the action of some of the Jehovah's Witnesses on bicycles, we would see, uh, we'd see revival in our land. And a hush came over the crowd. It's like a black hole. He sent them out. Mark 6, 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. There's another story here. They would take their sandals. And if a Jewish person would go into a Gentile land, you'll never want to walk on these carpets again. Uh, if a Jewish person would go into a Gentile land, when they came back in, they would shake the dust off and, and go like this. And it was an establishment of we're not going to bring in the bad particles or the bad juju, if you would, from, from the other countries into our land. This is just them saying, look, if you're rejected for knowing me, shake off the dust. 
That's a lot easier said than done. It's easy for me to be rejected by unbelievers. I want, it's relatively easy. But I want to tell you the rejection of friends and people along the journey is probably the most difficult. So I don't want to be too callous here and just go two by two and they reject and just shake the dust off. But if you love the world, if you love your neighbors as yourself, if you really care, then you are going to get rejected by people you're called to love. And it's going to hurt. Jesus said, look, you just got to shake off the dust as a A servant is not greater than his master. If you're rejected by the world or even maybe rejected by some of God's people, if you're truly following him and being biblical and led by the Spirit, a servant's not greater than his master. It's going to come to you someday. I'm not saying in doom and gloom here. I'm not trying to make you go that this is going to be a horrific journey. Because let me tell you, I would give my life to spend three years with Jesus around a campfire and fishing and hearing the stories and seeing people delivered every day. Wouldn't that, I mean, that's amazing. I would do it. But he was rejected by his own disciples. Only John was at the cross with him. Peter denied him. They just were gone. A servant is not greater than his master. Next section, the death of John the Baptist. We're going to start off with verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Isn't that something? Herod had heard of Jesus. That just amazes me. I, I want to think that maybe Herod had better regard for Jesus than the people in his hometown. Just a thought. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I have beheaded, has been raised. Herod was tripping out. Herod thought John the Baptist was coming back to town, and he was a little shaky about it. And that's just go, why was he nervous? For if it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday made a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. You leave the command... Oops. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And let me just put in a thing there. She wasn't just doing a little bit of this. It was... 99.9% a very sensual, a very uh, erotic type of dance. This wasn't not just a casual doing the locomotion type thing or whatever y'all do. Uh, It was just something different. I'm not going to dance and all God's people said amen. Um, 
So it says she pleased Herod and his guests. So we see this, don't we, in our culture that sexuality and, and all this thing, it just drives us. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. Did not, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid him in a tomb. Look at verse 20. So Herod had control. He had ultimate power, which we know what that brings in a lot of people, except for God. Like, the more power, the more problems. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I want to say in the Christian walk, there are people who want to get advice and counsel. And they like it as long as it fits within their paradigm. So Herod was highly respected, but ultimately, excuse me, Herod highly respected John, but ultimately put his head on a platter. It is said that Billy Graham one time went with a PGA tour and uh, was in a foursome, and I'm not a golfer that much, so you all know all that. So he was a foursome with three PGA pros. And when he got done the 18 holes, uh, Dr. Billy Graham just sort of left, said goodbye, and all of a sudden one of the PGA people went over there and just like took his club, just started throwing stuff and hitting golf balls everywhere and was just cursing God and going, what, what, you know, the other guy, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he said, that Christian man, that, he, he's got his belief and his this and his that, whatever. And, and the other guy went over and found Billy. Like, what did you, what did you say to him? He said, I didn't say anything. He went to the other guy in the foursome. What did Dr. Graham say to him? He said absolutely nothing. He was a complete gentleman. Folks, sometimes as a believer, if you're living in obedience... Your walk will be a judgment to other people without even a word spit out. I once had a person at a job who, I, who knew I was a pastor and knew I, I never proselytized to because I had to, in my line of work, I had to be very careful with stuff. One day just took off on me. And went, I don't need your church. I don't need your salvation. I don't need your forgiveness. I was like, what? Whoa. What? And I'm like, I'm, I'm taken to another manager with there. And I was like, look, these are some of the things that were said. 
And I just want you to know I have never thrown that in my position out to anybody. Only people who were set. And this person wasn't part of that conversation. Person came in with me, sat down. And I'm like, look, I heard you say this and this and this. He said, you didn't say any of that. Folks, there are times if you are living a holy life, not perfect, not got it all together, but that your presence, let me show, I should better say the presence of the Holy Spirit will bring conviction on people around you without a single word. And I want to say it's okay. John had this relationship with Herod and he told him things. I get the idea he liked John's uh, stuff. It probably helped him in some of his leadership. But then one day it went too far. He told John that he should not marry his half-brother's wife. Go figure, right? A big shocker. Newsflash, you know. Don't marry his wife. And that was enough that Herodias, the woman that he married, remembered John. This was a time that passed. Herod probably already forgiven it. And she was so angry that she was rejected by the truth of John the Baptist that when asked for what her daughter could get for dancing, it was the head of John the Baptist. And John's dead. I want to say that sometimes in the walk with Christians and discipleship, and we're going to be, we are talking and we'll continue to talk about discipleship here until I die and prayerfully for centuries after. In discipleship, sometimes people are okay with a certain lane of discussion. You can talk about me getting in the Bible more. You can talk about me praying more. That's okay. That's allowable. That's allowable. Uh, but if you talk about um, how I talk to my wife, or you talk about my relationship with my kids, or you talk about things that are biblical and you go there, very much like Herodias's. The door of rejection will slam on you. And let me tell you, it is, a, it is a painful door. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not being cavalier. I'm not saying it's easy. To have a friend in relationship, whatever, slam the door because you bring up biblical principles, because maybe you went somewhere they're not comfortable with, it was like all of a sudden, oh no, you can't go there. You can't cross this line because it's not in my comfort zone. Jesus is all up in your grill, folks. If you read the gospel, Jesus was all up every one of their grills. Peter, he was in his face. Peter, on Thursday, had denied him. Jesus said, do you love me? That wasn't fair of Jesus. That wasn't nice. It was very fair, and it was very true, and it was very necessary for Peter to put some of his self down and die to his flesh and love the Lord Jesus as he should. Rejection is a cost of discipleship when following Jesus Christ. If you're doing it right, you will be rejected. So, again, reminded... 
A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus died on a cross. John was beheaded. Disciples were rejected. Jesus was, uh, his mom was called an adulteress. A servant's not greater than his master. We cannot expect more. We cannot expect less. But we can just follow him. And he said, if you're following me, then my burden is light. Folks, I don't want you to leave here. You look at how you make your mark. I don't want you to leave here going, I'm done. Because if you're done, you've missed the, the thing. And there is hope in Jesus. There is a resurrection with Jesus. There is an eternity with Jesus. And he, you can be with him right here and now and get alone with him. We're going to talk about that next week. When you get alone with him, you're refreshed by Jesus. He knows what it's like to be rejected, and he can minister to your every need. A servant is not greater than his master. What did Jesus do? He did his father's will, and he was rejected for it, and ultimately he was murdered on a cross. Folks, this morning, uh, there, there are two people in the room. There's people who are rejecting the cornerstone. Jesus is a rock of offense to you. You do not believe he's the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible is explicit about what happens if you continue in that trajectory. It talks about an eternity in hell. And that same Jesus is the one who came and lived a perfect life that he could ransom many for the glory of God, that he has chosen you in joy and love as adopted children, not the, the best-looking, most gifted kid, but maybe the one that's in the playground looking for attention that no one wanted to see, and Jesus reached out to me. He can reach out to you. A service not greater than his master. I just share with you what our our. Master Jesus shares about discipleship and rejection. I ask that you would consider that looking at your life, are you rejecting your circumstances or are you rejecting the Savior? Please stand as we get ready to come to communion. Here at Oasis, we come to communion weekly so that we can get a chance to reconcile with God and to one another. So here's a, here's a rub. Here's where I'm getting in your grill. If you are having offense with someone this morning, the Bible makes it clear, don't come to communion and just sort of, sort of act like everything's good and, and whatever, that you go, you leave, leave us here and you go and reconcile with someone as best as you're able. There are some people you can't be reconciled to. I get it. But as much as you can, if there's someone here that you are not right relationship with, you need to go to. It's also a chance uh, as you come forward just to remember that Jesus loves you and he's with you all the way in your rejection, in your pain, in your suffering. He is there and you can trust him. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not just the death of Jesus, but I thank you for the resurrection God, that there's hope in this life, Lord, there can be time spent with you. There can be time of sweet fellowship in prayer and in silence and solitude with you, what, like Jesus did, Lord. But also, 
there is going to be great suffering and even rejection. Lord, as we come, I pray that we would uh, just lay down our old life and seek boldly your life and walk in faith so that you you won't walk by our house or our church and go, I just can't do things there. Lord, I pray that that would not be your words for Oasis. Lord, that we would be found faithful and believing. In Jesus' name, amen.